Welcome to the Five Panama Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hayes, and coming up on this episode, Mark Ishikawa, editor of Reminiscence, the new film on HBO Max starring Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, we were discussing Hirokazu Koreeda's afterlife and Koreeda's career. Um, Mark is one of the handful of people in my career I would consider mentor-ish, and uh, as you'll hear in this conversation, just a lovely person to talk to and a laid back calming but smart presence especially great one to talk film so i'm glad he's on to talk this but first up what i watched this week i did had mostly mainstreamish watch views this week i did my drive-in double feature and saw the two candy men um the DaCosta's for new one that just came out last week first which was, was pretty solid and then I have realized I've never seen the original. I thought maybe I'd seen seen it at some point, forgotten chunks of it at, at a sleepover as a kid, but no, I hadn't. And two things stuck out. Uh, it's directed, written and directed by Bernard Rose, who um, frequent guest host Ted Haycraft was telling me has an interesting career, long story career. And one of the first things that sticks out about Candyman of the 1992 version, which I'd never seen the movie, but I've heard its score because its score is done by Philip Glass. So you have a slasher-ish movie, progressive as it is, might be, higher, higher end than other stuff at the time, with the score by Philip Glass. Uh, just omnipresent organs. The other notable thing, which was odd why I didn't see it at the time, was I was I once called myself a Clyde Barker kid, but I had read my share of Books of Blood short stories, so Clive Barker's presence is in that. And I don't think Clive Barker's presence is in the new film at all. Uh, continuing with this uh, mainstreamy viewing this week uh, and stuff I just should have seen a long time ago, Jaws 2, which then just prompted me to rewatch Jaws for the 50 billionth time. And it's just, they're, they're fun to watch back and forth just because I, I, I couldn't go down that route of the infinite Jaws sequels. I've never seen them, but um, just comparing and contrast, a perfect movie versus the inability... The inability to recreate the perfect movie, even with a lot of the same elements involved, and and we're, it's fun to watch as a case study. Maybe not as entertaining as a movie, but case study works. But last it, mainstreamish view of the week, uh, Shang Chi. Uh, it was I have the last few MCU stuff has not been working strongly for me, so this was a very pleasant surprise. Um, again, Ted Haycraft and I were watching it together, and he. Unbeknownst said the right thing right before where we're talking karate movies. He was talking about how his dad never really got into him. And one of the selling points to a good karate movie for him, a good kung fu movie, is treating action sequences like musical numbers where people need to express uh, things, express emotions they can't express in reality. And sure enough, very, very shortly into the movie, there's one of the first big fight sequences is a really it slowly reveals itself uh is a pretty lovely courtship and the movie had a lot of those pleasant surprises it gradually it grew on me a lot too so much like a lot of other uh mcu stuff it you know it's 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 a genre blender in a very vanilla-ish way but it does the trick you know everyone complains about the marvel movies all looking alike kind of uh how to make movies the MCU way, but 
Um, and so, and also my unfamiliarity with a lot of Kung Fu movies, maybe I just was an easy mark, but I enjoyed it. So anyway, this is a long one. So let's get on with it with Mark Ishikawa. The other thing that was nice about watching this was I was thinking how like of everybody I know, you're the one that has the best VFX chops now. Like... Just like I don't know how the hell you cut those scenes in the um, like uh, when when the like they didn't film on that set that stage whenever they would do the memory recreation right did they do I assume if not they did some motion cameras and then you had to do you do picture in picture with that whenever you're like first pushing it putting it in doing your cuts or it was shot the intention was to shoot it on the set um, and they did a lot of it um, actually projected on the on the set and they set up this. Um, incredible system where essentially you know what concerts how they project images onto a screen and uh well that you can see through that you can see the, the sometimes you can see the artist behind them okay yeah. uh, basically kind of a gauze that they um they set that up on the stage so it was a real set um that had projection abilities and what we would do is lisa <laughs> originally she asked me when when we brought when we came on or when I came on, uh, she said, you know, we're going to, I'm going to need you on set. And I've been on location a lot, but like, this was like on set, on set. It's like, cause our cutting rooms were down, it was down the hall from the stage. Oh, shit. And so what ended up happening was I would end up cutting the film, the scenes, those, um, machine scenes a few times because you would, they would go out and shoot it on the, you know, in a park or whatever, let's say the first reminiscence of that guy in the wheelchair, his old army vet. And they would shoot it from three different angles, three different cameras, usually. Okay. Um, and and then I would have to cut together something pre-cutted, essentially, to match the three angles that they were going to shoot on the stage where the machine was. So you had to choose uh, performance pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a lot of um. So I would pre-cut it first, and then we would they would come to the cutting room. We would choose sort of how pre-plan maybe the angles that would be shot, not exactly you know it was all done in coverage but then um to create the illusion that um yeah he was walking around in a three dimension and they also did this um thing where they used game technology some of that 3d game technology like the Mandalorian where, stuff yeah sort of like that yeah where the background kind of shifts in relation to where the camera oh, angle right is. okay not exactly it's, but the move around yeah a little bit it, it was sort of like in that sense but instead of being around you obviously it's in front of you and so like, like a camera projection version of it yeah i mean i think it was being projected from the ceiling and then the camera would have these have these sensors on it so that it would know that if you were so the the camera operator and the dolly guys were free to move however they wanted and look around but the the image on the actual screen would shift in relation to make it look like it was um <laughs> I don't know how it all. No, no, were, it's it's, it's these how, guys in the how everything turns into a hologram. Like it's kind of. Yeah. I think. I mean, that seems like the way you're going to a hologram direction. Like it makes sense. Yeah. Um, but what ended up happening was, of course, we ended up doing a lot of it in post, um, as far as picking the, you know, adjusting shots and adjusting timing and and coverage, and so um, a lot of it because we did the pre-planning, it made it a lot easier to 
to get the images in the right angles and make it feel like it was really in three dimensions on the stage. But as everything, we were we would always adjust and tweak afterwards, and, and uh, you know what he was actually looking at. But when he was on the set, Hugh or Tandy or whoever was there ha- had something to look at, and so they could be reacting to something on the stage with the correct. Oh, okay, time. interesting. What what were the movies you guys were talking about in the editing room? I mean, I think I've read some mentions of some Neonors and Hitchcock, Rebecca, and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, there was. You know, we didn't really talk specifically. I mean, we did talk a lot about what the some of the conventions of of the noir films, uh, not in specifics, but like how to use the voiceover and how to use the music and and Uh, maybe. But as but but (laughs) but it quickly turned into, especially from the Westworld brains of theirs, you know, much more of the the nonlinear editing um, (laughs) uh, tricks and such. So, but it was nice that it was one of her intentions from the right, right from the beginning. I know when Lisa was pitching it was she didn't want it to be Blade Runner. She didn't want it to be, even though it was going to be compared invariably to all those films. But like to his credit, it does not feel to... like Blade Runner. Like the the coolest that like the like you kind of I kind of thought Waterworld at occasional spots, but like mm-hmm. in an obvious, very obvious way. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's Waterworld's not known as you know prototypical neo noir, so. No, no, no. But as far as narrative, yeah, no, the whole, the whole Sam Spade, you know, kind of, um, you know, uh, Humphrey Bogart type, um, Raymond Chandler-esque kind of feel of Chinatown-ish framework was always there. You know, we had that, those references. Um, but the nonlinear part of it, one thing that really attracted me to it was the nonlinear, you know, I've always loved nonlinear storytelling mm-hmm. and this actually had it all baked in. Whereas normally it would have just been a flashback, you know, somebody would be sitting there and then you would think back, remember back to an earlier time, but because of the mechanics of the machine and of the actual movie, you, there was an actual physical device that they get in and you go back in time. And so the, that actually the first hurt. reveal, especially like the first reveal where like, you feel like you've just been watching a very basic uneventful mm. sci-fi movie. And then suddenly the memory device comes in to play. Right. And then you realize she's been gone for like four months or whatever it yeah. might be. Yeah. So that, that was a nice little twist in, in that uh, a good use of it, but it did present certain challenges because you had to you couldn't just move around scenes as flashbacks because we were we were trying to stick to certain rules about when why he would go into the tank and whose perspective it would actually be following you know or 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 the the memory would be linked to so like for example we needed to try to get bolster their romantic relationship a little bit more earlier in the film so we moved there's a scene where they're in the park and they've kind of gone away on this little tryst in this beautiful setting and that used to be much later in the film but we wanted to move that much earlier because it was a very romantic scene a beautiful scene and very different than the rest of the you know it's like an everglades thing where they sneak away to some uh park that's all that's above water exactly it's like the drylands it's it's supposed to be in the um what do they call it the barren country where like kind of the rich people where they walled off walled off a section of the world and dammed it off so all the water was kind of kept out and that was uh-huh. the dry and it was so dry that they had to actually use their sprinklers to water their lawns you know those kind of things but it's like you know Beverly Hills Bill there <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you cro- cross over the 405 and you're in a different world 
but um, it's um, yeah. And so, but that scene we had to move up earlier, but we had to place it in a memory of his. We couldn't just cut to it saying, "Oh, earlier in their relationship," you know. It, we had to have a device that had him go back and remember that specifically. And so, you know, we had to. There were a lot of scenes of him going in and coming out of the tank, and so we just kind of had to jostle those around. So it, it was um... different. It, 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 pre it presented its own challenge for reordering of scenes because, um, yeah, we were trying to be very faithful to the rules we set up. And also where his voiceover came in because his whole voice prompt, the whole, you know, you're going on a journey and uh, just follow my voice and all of that. You know, once we established the idea that he had those little memory stick cards that he would go back and kind of replay memories replay in that case he was replaying his own voice to lead him back on that journey okay um, it that we had to this goes back sure to your experience with voiceover and, and voiceover yeah. rules exactly voiceover rules i did have one vfx question how i mean what how did the, the you guys do the water rising effect? Because it didn't look like CGI water. It looked like, at best, like, I don't know. Like, I just had no clue how you guys did that. Like, it didn't look like model work. It looked like maybe you rose some lines digitally. I don't, I, I have no clue. You mean just, like, overall throughout the Yeah, throughout overall. The I mean, I think, uh, well, it was a great VFX supervisor. This guy, uh, Bruce Jones, um, was the VFX supervisor. And he and Paul Cameron, the DP, had planned out a lot of the shots where... Uh, a lot of it was practical. All the things when, whenever any of the actors are walking through water, obviously, or kind of set in, um, you know, there were three distinct areas. Of... It would always be your wide shots because obviously, like your city shots, there was a little layer of water that you would yeah. walk through, and that's made sense. Right. Yeah. No, the wide shots were mainly CG. I'd say they were mainly CG. That is With... CG water. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Mainly. Wow. Like, I mean, Obviously, like say that big opening shot, that flyover in shot, you know, that's that's my yeah. Anime. That that one makes sense, but like there was just there were so many casual shots, like and even then, like I think it was the train sequence, like you tell one shot where it's like, oh, I see one shot in the middle that that does look a little VFXy, but but everything else is like that looks like you you guys just combined two or three practical and recomposited stuff or something in a clever way. Yeah, no, most of that was CG water. Like when they're up in the Freedom Tower, you know, for that one scene that kind of gets repeated in the film where where Bannister and May are, and he's telling the story about Orpheus up up the top, down below, you, that's the actual um, layout and geography of, of Miami around the Freedom Tower, but it's all CG. And then the, them walking along those, those uh, bridges and everything. That makes sense um, then. Yeah, because there was, you know, they did build a bigger water set in the, um, what we called the Sunken Coast, which was, I guess, supposed to be Miami Beach, sort of South Beach area. But um, the there's an old abandoned uh, Six Flags out in New Orleans where we shot almost everything. <laughs> okay. okay. And they, uh, <laughs> they flooded the main street there, like kind of when you walk in past the turnstiles. But and that doubled for a lot of the sets. And so when they, when he's actually having to take the, the boat up to say her nightclub to the coconut in new club Orleans, in, in new Orleans. Yeah. That, um, that was practical of him going up to the, to the, to the, uh, set or to the 
nightclub, but then the wider, when you go wider, widen out, then we just kind of CG beyond that. But then they also went to Miami and shot a bunch of drone stuff to uh, eventually, it was, it was interesting because it was a few weeks into our, maybe a month or two into our cut, but a few weeks into the lockdown of Miami, it was, this, you know, we cut everything from my living room, essentially, you know, every, we were all in our respective houses, but he, uh, they, there was this drone operator that said, if you want to go get empty Miami, so you don't have to worry because the whole premise one oh of the my of the film is that Miami yeah. is a ghost town during the day. Right. And then it's so hot that everybody does all the business at night. And he yeah. goes, if you ever want Miami empty, you have to shoot it now. Cause I don't know when, how long this is going to go on. Of course, now we know it went on for a year, but we all thought that it might just be a, a window of time that, that people weren't allowed on the street. And so he went down to South Beach and he shot all this drone footage of uh, empty Miami and went through all the, like even that, even the little tram that Bannister takes that, you know, mm. that's the real people mover that goes around Miami. And, uh, but there was nobody on that. The, they just kind of, it was on limited runs and, and maybe some of that was CG tram, but it was interesting. It was like a ghost town. It was just like, it was so weird Every, when we were watching between that and like the riots and the civil unrest and all everything we were cutting during last summer, we were like, we were, when we were cutting, we were like, oh my God, this movie's going to be out of date by the time <laughs> it comes out because everything's happening and the sea levels are rising and all we needed to do was a contested election. And then, <laughs> and then just a complete civil war in the country and then an actual war. So the war was in the, in the Middle East in the movie though, right? It, no, you know, that's one thing I noticed that one thing that throws you off, he talks about the Gulf at one point and I realized maybe we should have changed that because it's supposed to be the borders of the United States, people trying to get in. So the war was essentially on the, on the land of okay. people trying to get into he was border he, he banister's character was border patrol uh uh like when the sea levels rose a lot of people tried to get to dry land and they had to set up these barriers which is where he ended up interrogating people through the reminiscence machine well it's the trick of like good world building you have to put all you have to leave a lot of details on the table that yeah. and, like you and like especially if you're doing a chinatown thing like i was listening to someone describe why chinatown works the other day and a lot of it was that they give exposition up to the point where you're most interested and then they'd mm. stop giving it mm. mm -hmm. right yeah that's actually an interesting Interesting point. Yeah, there was a lot that we left sort of unexplained. There was a lot more exposition, which is, you know, it, it was just all the stuff that in the end didn't really move the story forward. And if people wanted to come up with their own stories to surround it, that's fine. But, you know, was, we had to kind of keep more to the, to the, his search for his, for this woman, which is essentially what the movie follows. Well, speaking of uh, getting into stories that you can fit in, we're technically uh, talking a specific director and specific movie on this, but um, mm. I did want to go into, and which is going to have your own interpretive stories onto it. But uh, before we get into uh, Afterlife, I did uh. want to, I mean, anytime I have a, a great editor on, like this has to double as like the editor's bio episode. So um, <laughs> sure. you're from San Jose? Or mm -hmm. you're in California, right? You're yeah, from California. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in the Bay Area. Yeah, San Jose, right in Cupertino, down the street from Apple. No shit. Back, yeah. What were um? 
so what was your family's um uh how much did you watch movies as a kid uh i watched quite a bit of movies you know we went to you know they were our favorite movie theaters uh as a family you know my 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 mom and dad, you know, my dad was an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer, sorry. And my mom was a phlebotomist, <laughs> well, worked in the medical, in the lab at the, at the hospital. So nothing to do with the arts at all. Were they but, interested um, in movies? Sure. You know, they liked movies, but not, they did, we didn't go out as a family specifically to things other than probably Disney movies. And I made them take me to Star Wars a billion times, I'm sure. And, and you know, but not as far as their favorite movies, I don't know. Even, I couldn't even really tell you exactly what they would have been, you know. There but, was no movies like your dad made you watch or like he pushed you onto you? I wouldn't say. No, I don't think so. I don't think it was coming from my parents. It was more from my peer group and my friends. And, and just growing up as a, you know, a lot of TV type, um, you know, Saturday afternoon movies and, 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 and those kind of... Uh, I guess that was probably my first introduction to the movies was, you know, obviously on TV, but this is the late seventies. <laughs> but then when I was old enough to go to the movies by myself and, you know, my, or, or be dropped off by my parents, my friends and I would always be going to, there were these great multiplexes that, uh, not multiplexes, uh, single screen, but like, uh, they were called the centuries in San Jose, century 21, 22, 23, that okay. had these huge, screens they were like the cinerama dome screens and but really? there were three of them yeah they were, they were just torn down last year a couple years ago unfortunately but um but uh whatever was playing there and so you know growing up and and enjoying the uh you know all the all the would this be like late 70s early 80s whenever they were blowing up um all the blockbusters into 70 millimeter like Spielberg movies and uh, Star Wars and 70 millimeter or like Poltergeist and things like that? Um, I'm not, not even necessarily 70 millimeter. I bet you they were still 35, but they were big and, and big um, um, spectacles, you know, and, and, but they were all those, you know, uh, Star Wars and Raiders and, and all of those would be big event movies on those big screens. Um, you know, and so we enjoyed, you know, through, through that time and, and through the whole eighties, you know, Ghostbusters back to the future type things, we would always be, I think that was more my attraction to the movies was the size and the spectacle. And, you know, I love the stories. And I think the only things my parents, I remember they would take us to drive-ins a lot too. And I remember seeing one of my first memories was seeing Star Wars. It must've not been my first time because I remember when Darth Vader comes through that first door knowing knowing who he was but seeing him on the big screen as we were driving into the theater into mm -hmm, the, into, mm -hmm. and being so upset that we missed the beginning because i'm sure i wanted to see that first <laughs> opening crawl but i was just like we're not you know it's already started i can see it from a distance you know driving th driving uh, there's a driving near us that i i was was my big pandemic dewey thing um oh really still huh interesting even now like there's a part of me it's like i still don't like it, it's easier um okay we're gonna talk uh uh Carita in afterlife um but like i know you a lot as someone also who was big into i don't i mean not necessarily doc chops but like you were always the big behavior uh uh 
natural when did art house film come into play when did you start like how did your taste kind of branch out from there um you know it's it's interesting i don't even know first of all that i really had but because i still enjoy the big blockbuster stuff but that was something um, you and i also always had in common was as, as art housey as we would get you and i still could talk to blockbusters sure 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 and because i think that does i mean going back to my whatever you know origin story type stuff it's like my first getting into movies you asked wasn't specifically about movies it was about i remember um this one um uh, behind the scenes of make, uh, making of Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, that it was like part of this PBS pledge drive I remember that my, that we had taped on v VHS and I'd watch it I, I saw a Star Wars one that was similar to that it would have been later but right yeah but it was just like it was just down and dirty but they showed how and, and showed Spielberg behind the scenes you know with Lucas talking to Harrison Ford about in the well of souls you know how they made that and I had no idea that that's was a job you know and so between that and going to Universal Studios a lot as a kid, actually, you know, that I th now I think about it, that's how my parents, <laughs> the closest thing that they probably had to understanding once I sp expressed an interest in making movies was taking me to Universal Studios every summer or, or so, because that's how I thought you got into movies is... I, I remember because that's how Spielberg got into movies. Hanging yeah, out this is the universe a lot. <laughs> Only found that out much later. I should have jumped off that tram. But it's, <laughs> it's you know it's funny though because I remember reading at some point like my sixth grade. What do you want to be when you grow up? Or it was probably earlier than that. Maybe it was like fourth grade. But it was um, I wanted to be Universal Studios tram operator <laughs> <laughs> because that's the closest thing I knew to movie making, you know? And I was like, that must be the entry level job to get into making movies. You could have been in mall rats. <laughs> That's right. Um, but anyway, but getting, but so that, so my, my, those were my interests for, I'm sure through high school, I'm sure I didn't, I, I know I was aware of, um, um, film history and, and other, uh, you know, so a friend of my mom's had for some reason had every best picture film on VHS. And so I remember okay. sitting on one summer, just watching every single best picture film from 1929 wings till, or, Jeez. you know, and, and cause and not just, all those I, are good movies too. No, no, I'm sure. And I'm sure I missed some of them or didn't understand some of them, you know, midnight cowboy or whatever it might be, but, fair, but, <laughs> fair enough. but, but, you know, finding movies at, at that stage, opened me up also to movies from the seventies that I guess were probably on VHS by then, but movies, you know, like the graduate or raging bull, or I remember the sting. I really loved the sting. I don't know if you've watched that recently, but I, I love that movie. It's been, um, it's been on my uh, queue to rewatch. Cause um, I think after once upon a time in Hollywood, I was just like, I really want to watch the big, um, big star duopolies like i want to watch oh like, yeah yeah big the pairing newman kind of stuff yeah 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 i mean but I, that's I've, a, I've seen bunch of casting and as kids enough times for my lifetime but still yeah i mean like the sting is like one of those movies that even now i watch it's just great filmmaking and great writing and it's how and there's a twist at the end that kind of gets you as an audience member even it's i do like, remember being good writing yeah yeah and, and, and great pairing, yeah. Like you said. Oh, amongst everything else. It's just, it yeah. was like better writing than, um, but still the question remains, when did Art House come into the play? Yeah, and so it was probably when I went to Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara for film school, and then I was introduced to more, to, to more um, 
Were you watching you know, mostly open, American open. films by this point, or? Yeah, I, I would say so. But I'm sure you know. I'm sure there were there were several courses I took in every other um, in in uh, international film, and and uh, and then being introduced to you know at that point probably Jim Jarmusch and Jim Vendors and all those kind kind of, kind of things. And I was in school in like the you know, mid eighties. Well, no, no, I was I'm not that old. I'm in the early nineties. I you know I. Which but it's is, the mid '80s movies that was the like, yeah, that we were watching, yeah, or okay. that I was okay. kind of more aware of, um, and then, but then, during the early '90s, seeing much more of the independent films that are, I mean, Tarantino obviously being one of them with Reservoir Dogs coming around around, around that time, um, but being influenced in, uh, I mean, it's kind of Hollywood art house, but that that aspect of it. Sure. But so you, you did kind of the apprenticeship editorial route route that like, seems like it takes fucking forever to do. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it was a little bit of a different time, but I, you know, I came up during when things were still being shot on film, but being, uh, ingested into the avid, you know, tell us an eight overnight and and put into the avid and then, uh, reconformed onto film and then, negative being cut so there were bigger crews and so i was able to soon after college get a job down in la um just on this horrible straight to video schlock you know there was all kinds of companies i worked for that that weren't um either kids movies or skinamax movies or you know whatever it was there were all these different aspects to all these these small companies and what the crazy thing was, a lot of them shot on 35 millimeter film. It's a little crazy to think about now. And then it was just going to go straight to video. But um, but yeah, through that, I, I, I got an apprenticeship with um, one of my mentors, my heroes, was Richard Chu. Uh, That's where on, I was getting to, Richard Chu editors, one of the three editors of Star Wars. Exactly, exactly. And I, I only knew three editors' names when I was a kid. It was Paul Hirsch, Marshall Lucas, and Richard Chu, just because their names kept <laughs> popping up at the end of Star Wars. So how and, did the apprenticeship um, happen? So it was uh, just through a friend, just from working at one of those places. I was working at this place called Full Moon, and, and they uh, the, the editor um, that I was working with, Margaret Ann, she, her friend was... Tom Hanks's assistant or something like that. And so they said, Oh, do you want to work in this new Tom Hanks? He's, this was at the peak of his, I mean, this was like right after Philadelphia, actually right after, what was the second one he won for? Forrest Gump. Um, Forrest Gump. It was right after Forrest Gump. And he said, he's making a movie. I said, Oh, that's great. He's, I said, he uh, was directing a movie at this point. He was directing a movie. Right. And I said, Oh, that sounds really interesting. But like an idiot, I had like some plans or something. And I was like, I don't know if I can do that. Cause I don't know if it's going to go into my schedule. And then they said, Oh, but Richard Chu is editing it. Do you want to meet? Him. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I was like just as excited about that as, as working on the Tom Hanks movie. And then sure enough, met with Richard, he was great, hit it off and he hired me on. And at that point I wasn't even an apprentice. I was a kind of a post PA and just getting hobbies. Oh, I know and, that route so well. Oh, oh yeah. But then, so yeah, so got on, that was my first, but at that point I had enough union hours working on the other stuff that I was able to move up, I think there to a second assistant. And yeah, I worked with Richard on several films and, um, and, uh, moved my way up there. But yeah, I was working 10, 12 years as an assistant before I really got my first editing shots. Was there anything, I mean, you had a, some fun credits as, as, uh, uh, assistant, like, was there anything memorable from those years that, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I was fortunate to, there were, there were two mentors I had, uh, Richard Shube and the other one was Bob Layton, Robert Layton, who oh, okay. Bob cut all of Rob Reiner's movies through the eighties, uh, from Spinal Tap on. So he oh, wow. did, but all of those movies that, you know, that I just loved, you know, I, I think I think when I, when we first met, I was going through your IMDb. I remember I think I told you it was like I kind of got a soft spot for the story of us. <laughs> story of us. Oh yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, by that time it was like, I mean, yeah, that was when I started working with Rob and 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 Bob. But, um, but yeah, all those earlier movies, the eighties movies, the the you know, Ms., the Harry Met Sally, Princess Brides, Stand by Me, all of all of those Rob Reiner movies that can't you kind of like grew up with even up to I remember at one point really even a few good men I was that was one of the times I was really aware maybe at that point I was more aware of editing I was like really respected what the editor's uh job on that film was mm -hmm. creating that courtroom drama and then um yeah being able to work with him was great so I worked with him on 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 uh story of us but then also on the Christopher Guest movies and so that was those were a lot of fun so we worked on best in show and mighty win best yeah. in show in particular my i had a bunch of college friends it was i mean christopher guest movies are pretty commonly quotable so <laughs> yeah and it holds up it's funny i just watched on a, and it, the funny thing is of films like that and we even shot on super 16 i think because he wanted to make it look like a documentary like an old you know just a, a, not the best production value as far as film quality and so it almost ages better in that sense because it feels like this thing you just found in the old archives of 16 millimeter film, and, uh, even though it has Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, yeah, people you no. recognize. But so yeah, but those were great experiences. It was great experiences and get and cut my teeth on or learning by observing and just being around some great mentors. In that sense. So when did you make the jump? Uh, I really, I mean, I'd cut some things, some indie things on my own before that, uh, before uh, the new world, which was basically the first time. What happened was uh, I went, I was still working with Richard. Richard got hired on for the new world uh, with, with Malik. And um, we, they shot it in Virginia. We cut it. We were during production. We were in LA and then we went out to Austin for... You started oh, cutting in L.A.? Yeah, uh, yeah, started cutting in L.A., just with assembly, just kind of getting things. But again, it was being shot on film, and so we had most of the stuff, we were only... At that point, we weren't really uh, printing all the film. We were only printing select reels. But eventually, when we got to Austin, we had a bunch of stuff printed because we were conforming the film. It's crazy to think about that. That blows my mind. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know how much Terry shoots. And so it was just like, we were, sh we were printing all this stuff. We had this cutting room set up, up on Bee Caves Road in Austin. And, um, and I was in charge, but because I was the, essentially the first assistant associate editor at that point, Richard was cutting and, but I was familiar with all the, all the footage. And so. It's in another position I'm familiar with too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, but the thing was getting to Austin, um, and this is before. And so eventually, uh, Hank Corwin and, and Sarah Klein also came on to cut and um, everybody was kind of working on their own parts of the movie. And so t uh, Richard was sort of working on the opening and Sar was given the battle, that big battle in the middle. And Hank sort of was given the John Rolfe section at the end of the movie. 
um, but then there was this big section in the middle that from from the opening till when John Smith kind of meets Pocahontas and then goes back and forth up and down the river. And I just kept assembling. Which is dramatically kind of the bigger part of the movie. <laughs> it's a pit. Yeah, exactly. And it's a pretty, you know, it was a pretty sizable chunk. And I kept having them, or it, it started because Terry kept coming to me because I knew where all the bodies were buried, or I knew where all the footage was, essentially. And then, again, that's something you're familiar with. Okay. Um, but then I, he kept leaning on me. And so I kept cutting more and more. And, and Richard was already letting, was having me cut big sections. Were you cutting for Richard before this? Like um, how, just mu- little, how much often were you cutting? Just a little bit, just scenes here and there, or maybe a little bit of a sequence on, say, I, like on I Am Sam, or or I did this movie, uh, First Daughter, with, with uh, Forrest Whitaker. Um, you were naming it, so many movies that I, like, projected <laughs> at one point in, here in Indiana, so. <laughs> oh, really? Yep. How funny. Yeah. But um, I, um, but yeah, so I was already sort of cutting. But at this point, it wasn't long after my stint in, I mean, it's long into my stint in Austin where, where Sar and Hank and Richard were just like, look, Rich, Mark's doing just as much cutting as we are. He should be editor. And so I, I they bumped me up. They were really gracious. And they just kind of said, you know, we're, we're going to make this a four person editing editor credit. And then you should be on there. And then, so what ended up happening, of course, they all ended up leaving for other jobs and such and such. And then I ended up being on for another year after that. And so I realized that that was where way of roping me in. And then I was eternally grateful, but I was just like, they, as Terry and, um, you know, Sarah Green used to say, like, we just needed somebody to steer the ship at that point and, and, and land the plane. And so you were best qualified. So you just stayed on. And, and then, I mean, as I know, you know, but the new world, the new world went through all these different iterations of cuts. And, and then, so that was, you know, me and, 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 you know, a lot of the other guys, AJ and, and, um, you got to tell the story about the premiere. My favorite, one of my favorite stories of yours is like, uh, taking notes at the premiere. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that, essentially, yeah, we finally got to the premiere of the new world and it's used to be, it's supposed to be the celebratory time when everybody's saying, Oh, what a great job. And, you know, really happy with everything, however they came out. But maybe a day before that, we got the note from new line that they wanted it to be 15 minutes shorter for when they released theatrically. And so it was the only time in my career that I was at the premiere with a notepad and I was kind of writing down notes about where to cut things out. <laughs> and so, it, and then of course, afterwards, it's the same thing afterwards, uh, everybody having cocktails and orders and saying and you're just oh. like tucking your notepad in your pocket. exactly like, great movie and we're all happy yeah and they're like oh it's so great it wouldn't uh, you it don't touch a frame movie don't touch a frame yeah and then so what happened in between um this entry of life because i mean we first met obviously entry of life right uh what did happen i went and worked on this movie this, this small movie called independent uh called um american pastime which was actually one of my most personal projects. I loved that movie because uh, it's about um, uh, Japanese American internment camps. And both my parents were interned when they were very young, but it's um, also about um, baseball. Yeah. It's about baseball in the internment camps. And so it was a, it, it, um, you know, about these two brothers that get, or this family that gets put into the camp and and they, um, in order to, you know, retain some sense of normalcy in their lives. You know, all the, and this is all true story um, or based on true stories um, made um, 
baseball leagues. And, and so they, you know, this, this film had to do with, um, yeah, it was just kind of a, it was just a smaller film, but anyway, I did that in between. And then, gosh, that's a good question. Lime Life comes in up. between this. Oh, Lime Life probably comes in there. Um, yeah, I worked on this film called Bolden up in the Bay Area that took years to come out. I, I, um, uh, but Lime Life, I, I met Derek Martini during that time. I worked on that. Uh, yeah, and then they asked me back for Tree of Life. And uh, again, it was a similar situation where they I knew there was going to be multiple editors and you know Billy Weber was already out there cutting at the beginning. And I came on during, um, I guess Daniel was out there during that time, right? Daniel was Sunday. Uh, right, because I came out. Was, was, I did you get there before Jay Rabinowitz was there, or did he, I came out? He, I came out right after. I came out right before Jay. So there was an overlap, <laughs> wasn't there? There was an overlap. There was this weird overlap where Billy was supposed to start and then go to Daniel, and then I overlapped with Daniel a little bit. But as I was with Daniel, Jay, I don't was Jay coming on from anyway. But Jay came on at that point, and I just remember because I had to show him around, and because he was like, "What's going on here?" Because <laughs> Jay well, was just like. I've described this to you before, but I just remember one of your first days there. I felt like I've I've been interning on there for a while, and we had in the back room, which is supposedly the main editor's room, who kept coming and going. Mm -hmm. I had never seen magnetic tape on a mm -hmm. or mag magnetic paint on a wall, and then mm -hmm. like every scene was supposed to be divided up that way, and we weren't using it. Nothing was used it, and I remember it was a Saturday. All, everyone stuck in the room and up to that point no one like we were interns we weren't given the guidance on what the hell was going on uh-huh <laughs> i just remember i was kind of in the room off and on during the day and you guys were rearranging the uh, the scene cards on the wall with the magnetic paint and right. that was the day i was like oh my god this is a movie up until that point and like and again like i'm not sh i'm not showing the grand picture of anything because i'm an intern but i was just like oh i see this is so a movie what was I the main you were leading point? it you were leading it oh and okay. then suddenly it was just like oh there's a narrative direction to it and you were just like well, why don't we do this why don't we do that this makes obvious sense that this can come after this this seems like this can there's that and then that was the first thing that led to an assembly right yeah I remember that whole thing about the magnetic paint I mean which was Chris Roldan's brilliant idea I'd never seen that before and I don't know where Chris came out with it you never seen it before too I'm glad dude I'm glad okay yeah no because there had never been enough scenes to do that usually you have a whiteboard or a corkboard and you put up scene cards uh, scene cards are common well, he, and he single. notoriously had the thing where we were always told that there was like most mo movies that had 200 scenes at most and he he would do a thing where we didn't go all the way to 100 on certain numbers but we got into the 900s on scene. Yeah, yeah, because the, the, like it was almost like the Dewey Decimal System or something, right? Because yeah, yeah, they yeah. Say, they would start in the 600s. And say, okay, then these and the were, unscripted were, were like scenes those had scenes. their own 100 number too. Right, right. And so there were a lot. I mean, but there were probably four, four five, 600 scenes. Who knows? But yeah. but yeah, but Chris had, he said, look, we, we don't have a board big enough for all of these. So let's paint the walls magnetic and put magnet, magnets on the wall. And I, to I be fair, like, I was not the intern that had to make those magnetic uh, <laughs> cards, but I do remember, I do remember having to do some keyframes for them, but I did not have oh, to yeah. do the cards themselves. But my first thought was, are we going to all get cancer with magnetic paint <laughs> all around us? I was like, this is a crazy <laughs> idea. But, but, uh, but the funny of this story about that whole thing was that I remember at some point we, it was so hot. This was probably in the summer of Austin, you know, sure. Heat, 
and that stuff, it, you know, the uh, the adhesion or the magnetic power didn't work. wears off, and so things would just be falling off the 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 wall just randomly. And so we would half joke, half not really say, "Terry, there goes your scene. Too bad." You know, that's that was our way of editing. We were like, "Okay, which one was that?" Another one bites the well, dust. Well, my, my way of surviving Austin at the time was like I was a night person and I worked nights. So mm-hmm. I would come in at night where I guess the scene stuck to the walls. <laughs> but, you know, as far as as far as organization, I I um or, or setting up some order to that film. That was key because I remember vividly now, like somebody had the thought. It was probably Terry. Um of setting up diurnally and setting up seven days. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, diurnally came up. Um, some some of the Korea stuff I was uh Korea stuff I was I was watching this week has a lot of diurnal rhythms. Um, there's been mm. a few things I've been watching diurnal in like a lot of TV shows. Uh, Korea has uh, a TV background, and a lot of TV mm. shows do that. Which whenever mm. you're dealing with something that long, a diurnal rhythm just makes sense. And to explain, a diurnal rhythm means you follow the rhythm of morning to night. You follow the rhythm of the sun, so morning light goes to to evening light mm-hmm. to night. And, and, it, and it made it, even though I mean, even though the story was so nonlinear in a way, it gave some structure even for us editing to know where to put a scene. Just to kind of if a if you're tilt a card literally, and you say, okay, well this is a night scene, and they're going to bed, you just put that down at the bottom of the of one of the days and you can move all the days around and we get different structures of like days or like, uh, which were the structures we ended up with, with the, uh, Buddha sites and everything like that. Right, right, right. And then also the, he had these dream sequences, right? Like they were like the giant in the attic or the, uh, in between the days. The, the pl- yeah. Or the plane or, but those weren't necessarily always there. I mean, he shot them, but as, as kind of, uh, departures from the from the story that or magical realism or whatever it might be but then it just made more sense to put them at night the one that changed i remember at the end of like say the second day there was this big cow montage or this big cow oh, section god um, yes and i was like and i was like, was on an episode by the way and we described <laughs> this on the episode Oh, really? <laughs> How it got moved to the front because we were like, why are we sitting in the middle of watching all these cows right in the middle of the story? And then it obviously made a great, when he was trying to set up the, the thesis, it, it, it yeah. fit perfectly there. So, but yeah, it was it was a different way as everything was out there of editing. But, you know. How long were you on Tree of Life? Um, it, I was probably on a good year and a half, I would say, you know, um, because... You know, after the first, after being out in LA, uh, in Austin, we came to post here. And I can't remember if we went back and forth. But no, we stayed. Um, we stayed AJ and Keith went back and forth, but we, we stayed out in LA. All right. Um, but yeah, I'd say it probably all in a year and a half. Because, I mean, if you probably remember, is we were going, we were shooting for the Cannes Festival in 2000. What was it? Would have been 10, maybe? 2010, and then we went in 2011. And then one day they said, oh, you know what? We're going to go next year. And they were like, and knowing the way Terry worked, we're like, does that mean we're working for another year on this? And I remember him meeting with Bill Polat out there. And they, you know, we didn't go on for another year, but we went on for several months. Well, the cool thing I remember was that he pushed that my my problem with the, the entirety of my career is the greatest experience was the first experience. Everything else is just not <laughs> lived up to, mm-hmm. to it since then. 
And so, like, he was always pointing out that, like, the... Because I remember for the longest time we were editing without sound, and I was like, isn't this a p component? And um, forever in Austin. And then when we got into to L.A., it was almost all sound. And he was mm. like, we need to see this on a stage. We need to see this with big sound, how this is going to do this. And most movies usually, especially at the time, only had a very small sound mix to, like, finalize some of their stuff. And I know he kept referencing the Coens, who had multiple sound mixes at that point. And he kept pushing longer and longer. He's like, I need to see this big. I need to see this with sound after a certain point. And it did make a difference. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Seeing it on the big screen and also getting Terry just to watch large sections of the movie and sit and just concentrate on, you know, what we had in, in real by real was important. And it's a good place to see it because we were right there on the lot. And so we could just run down to the stage and, and watch it and, and, uh, I don't know if we would we would mix for screenings or we, I guess we were just doing it ourselves. Oh, that's we right. Got there was stems. that one. We'd always remix the stems. They, they yeah, and the stems to us, and then we'd recut off those. But we had because we were cutting upstairs in that one room. I think that building's been torn down. But like we could we could feed it directly into that theater, and we could watch. We had we that could long screen it. wire going into that theater. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, and then screen it and project it into that on the big screen. That was really actually really nice. I haven't really had that much since. That, that really because you well you usually have to output and put it into another format and then get it screened in the proper yeah, I theater but that, I, I, that, I, 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 I since i was doing a lot of vimeo outputs and i guess we were only doing stereo vimeo outputs for a long time what happened after tree oh i did a movie called angry span in brooklyn and i did oh, a movie okay <laughs> I did a movie called Hick, and that was again with Derek Martini. Another wait, one isn't Angriest Man in Brooklyn a Robin Williams last movie? It's one of his last. Yeah, he did another movie called Boulevard after that. But um, yeah, no, I worked with um, the director Phil Alden Robinson on that on that one. Um, I was bringing up uh, Field of Dreams the other day. How nearly for me at least that's a some quasi perfect movie for me. Oh, we oh were, yeah. one of my one of my favorite memories of you and also one of the things that like actually was kind of a learning thing from you was like I would always go into your room and you'd always have a laptop open with the MLB network on at the side. <laughs> and you'd be watching Giants games. And I adopted it cuz like I would put like and I'd have directors come in and see me watching like a Pacers game. And I wasn't watching it. I just had it on at the side because what it was was at least what I took from it was this idea that the problem when you're really stuck on a scene or you're really putting all your mental energy into a scene, it's so easy to get lost into the termite art of it all and start frame fucking. And you start frame yeah. fucking a, a cut that doesn't need to be there. And yeah. so what you need is some just kind of like casual thing to like get you out of that reverberate of like, some other media, some narrative media that does not matter. And it was like, mm. yeah, just have a fucking sporting event on the <laughs> side that you could check in on occasionally. And you're like, oh, yeah, the Pacers are losing. And you cut back and you're like, oh, my God, this this cut doesn't work. I need to completely redo these like last three shots. That's funny. That's funny. I Yeah. Don't tell my current directors I do that. Actually, <laughs> oh, but, oh the, the Giants are having a really good season this year. So it's, it's been fun to watch. Um, it's funny too about the the whole Field of Dreams thing. Did you watch that whole thing? The other I watched day? half the, the game. I watched I watched the middle part of the game, and then I saw the highlights of the ending that I missed. And I then, but that but that too. night I, I watched Field of Dreams all over again because it was it was high on iTunes apparently because a lot of people 
had that. Oh, idea. sure. Oh, that's a great movie. It's a great movie. And it, and yeah, working with Phil Alden Robinson was, was really great. I mean, he's, he's, he's an old school, like one of the, um, really knew what he was doing. And though that film may have not turned out like he wanted to, again, it was a great experience. You know, one, one story, you'd lo- I don't know if you've heard this, he's probably related to this other places, but if you really love Field of Dreams, one of the things I remember him telling me about that movie was, um, the ADR at the end. Have you heard this story? Um, about, Maybe not. about, about playing catch with the dad. So the whole movie, they're testing the movie and I'm just kind of, I'm sure I'm butchering his story, but it was, it came right from the horse's mouth. He, he, he said, cause we were talking about ADR doing ADR for uh, Angry's Man in Brooklyn. And he said he believes in ADR because they tested field of dreams and everybody loved it. And then they hated the ending and they could not, um, uh, it got these horrible scores, these really poor scores and they couldn't figure out why. And they realized it's because they thought they'd built the movie so much that everybody was going to know that was his dad. And I guess they did know that that was his dad, that he was playing catch with. He says, you want to have a catch? But if you notice off screen, he says, dad. Yeah, or he because, says, that's my dad or something like that. Well, no, he says, he, he says, I think he says, hey, dad, you want to have a catch or something like that. But he used to just say, you want to have a catch. And so it's a big moment for Kevin Costner's character. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throwing the ball. But the audience left real thinking that the, the that dad never knew that that was his son. And so it was something for Kevin Costner's character, right? And so then off screen, so they went back in, in ADR and they just had him just say, hey, dad. And then you cut to Costner and he says, oh, I know, the, I know the cut. I know the cut now. Wow. And then he throws and then the, the, the numbers went through the roof because that's what everybody's waiting for. The entire movie, you're just waiting for that moment. And then every, you know, you're, you know, your heart fills and you just feel like that bonding moment. And then it makes that, but I, but he, if he didn't say, Hey dad, and he just says, you want to have a catch? It means something to the character of Costner, but then you don't, you realize it was well, nothing. Cause the, to the dad doesn't play it as like, he knows that it's his son. No, but, he doesn't play it, but because once he says the ADR dad, is there, you get that vibe that he does know it's his son. He's I mean, known. and he's down, yeah, and he's downplaying it or whatever it is, and then the, he's playing catch with his son. But if he didn't have that, you would be like, what? So emotionally, like, you know, stymied. There's always those tiny things you just can't calibrate. Of like, you need to see it in front of an audience. Like yeah. the the other the other big thing that I learned a lot from you that wasn't just from you. It was from that entire room. But I like to think it was just from you. Was the calibration of an audience. It was like how to read a room. Because uh, mm. I think I've told you the story. We we had a screening, and we had a pretty high profile viewer on there, and they were giving us editing notes. And they were saying like, oh man, the boys are so rambunctious and it's beautiful. And when I'm thinking of the boys and how rambunctious they are, I'm just thinking of all this energy that's there. And I started thinking of the dinosaurs. And I was just like, why can't you cut to the dinosaurs at that oh point? Oh my God. Like, well, because that's exactly what I'm thinking right there. Why don't you make the connection? And we ended the screening. You did not say a word. <laughs> and we ended the screening. And we're going through our notes on what everyone said. And I casually mentioned like, oh, do you, do you catch that note about why we should maybe intercut the dinosaurs? And you're just like, well, she asked it to be intercut, right? That's how I know we're wor- it's working because she wanted it. We're not giving it to her, but she wanted it. And she made that connection. <laughs> we don't have to do the shot to cut it in there. It's already there. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And plus, but it was it was it was the brilliance. The thing I took from that was just don't lead the witness whenever you're doing uh, edit, edit editorial. Like just like sit back, just let them the audience say what they thought of it, and then you got to take your notes from that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's it's always important to see it in front of an audience, or at least to not lead. Yeah, not lead your witness when you're asking how they what they thought of a movie. Because I was just thinking about this today. Like I've been in rooms where directors have like told audience members, like you don't understand my movie. This is exactly what, what that one <laughs> scene. And there was information in that scene that made it clear of why, what this, this confusion you're having. Oh no, it's in that movie. And, and the audience member was like, Oh, okay. And they just went home. I, I worked on a movie where the director got in an arguing match with, one of the people in the, in the audience after there was a Q and A, it was just a friends and family Q and A, but there was this whole thing that went down and I was like, this is not good. It was, it was a friends and family. It, to be fair, it was a friends and family, the one, but I'm thinking of, but, um, so, um, Mockingjay would have come after that or. Yeah. So Mockingjay after Angus Man Brooklyn, um, I got, yeah. Mockingjay from, uh, you know, an old friend, colleague of mine, Alan Bell had been working with Francis Lawrence on his last, couple movies water for elephants and catching fire and he he wanted um they knew that the mockingjay movies they were going to shoot back to back or all at the same time and, and then do part one and part two and they were going to need more help and so he called me in for an interview and this is where um you know francis lawrence was a fan of terry's and um i vouched for you know by a couple people that he trusted mm. and uh yeah, and then got the job, so that was that was a big, big. Budget How long was movie. that then? Completely opposite of Tree of Life, and so it was kind of strange to jump from one to the other. But um, uh, that was probably I was probably on that for a year because we shot in Atlanta for like six months, and then oh no, I must you have were in Atlanta longer. during that six months. Yeah, I was in Atlanta. Uh, I would drive out to set. Alan would they, they would have this. Uh, trailer set up kind of a mobile editing stage so alan would always be there cutting on set and i would be back in the cutting room in atlanta um uh working on other scenes and then i would drive out to lunch wherever they were have dailies with francis and alan and a lot of the crew it was almost like old school days where you would kind of watch dailies every day and then kind of get the big the main notes from the director and then i would go back and yeah, drove a lot around Georgia during that that period, <laughs> but um, but yeah, and then quickly we had to. They were releasing the Hunger Games every Thanksgiving during that time, so uh, Mockingjay One came out, and then I stayed on through uh, about half of post on Mockingjay Two, and then Alan finished it. I remember um, I was on my first completely solo movie. Like I did one movie where I did work with a director who kind of wanted to cut be, edit with me, but by my solo one and I was working in the South near Atlanta. And mm-hmm. I remember calling you when I had one, like a first panic or something like that. And, um, one of our mutual friends coined this phrase, but it stuck with me was, um, W W M Y D which was what would Mark Ishikawa do? And it was, it was, a lot of it really was, okay, back in the day, back in the Tree of Life days, like we, we would always go out and um, a lot of the interns would go out and 
I, I hope I'm not revealing too much, but like we would assess the people we were working with, all the big people we were working with. And I remember your assessment was like, we had different measurements. So there was like chops. There was basic chops, the way to make a scene interesting. There was story sense. And then there was a thing that we kind of knew about, but most of us were too young to understand, but was how to make a director happy. <laughs> you were the only person that scored high on all three, basically. <laughs> And That's I remember crazy. also just like, and I've, I've done this shtick for you. My impression of you, you remember my impression from the tree of uh, the two, the wonder days where it was basically, you would be like thrown some random scene, usually something I cut that you were just like, okay, how do I get this into the movie? Like if this is what the hell did I just watch? You would always be like standing there and then you'd kind of like slowly back your way into a wall and just lean against the wall and then rub your hands through your hair and just sigh and then you'd come up with an explanation like, okay, I can see how that can work. <laughs> that sounds familiar. That must be a, a calling card. Cause I think, cause on this, on, on reminiscence, the director's assistant was doing an impersonation of me and it was something very similar. So probably, probably <laughs> well, you have a very calming presence and you could take crazy and you're just like, don't, don't dismiss this. This there's yeah. something here. It was always like, there's something to be gained from even the most bad shit to come at, <laughs> come at you. You would always yeah. find something to like, whether it's a positive or a way that they get, like, or from an editor's mind, like, this is how we can integrate this. Right. Yeah, no, that's what I appreciated about, especially during those days of, of Malik and what I have brought along to me on, on things that are very un-Malik-like, but, but never dismissing anything wherever it comes from, any ideas. And, and that's one thing that I really appreciated about all the work that, you know, everybody did out there, but especially during Tree, you know, with, with, with the, you know, you know, between Chris and, and AJ and Keith and, and everybody kind of coming together and, um, you know, Julia and Ellsbury yeah. and all these people that... The real murderer's row. <laughs> yeah, but you never really, you couldn't be precious about things. And I never had been before that, but even less so now, you know, as far as wanting to know where take ownership over ideas you know that kind of thing it, it kind of had to be shared and, and that's part of what I, you know, I learned that from my mentors but it's also just kind of a better everybody's trying to help make the film better and they all everybody has their own perspectives and so but at, at a certain point you do have to be the gatekeeper and i know that's what terry and sarah would always try to get me to do is just say look you got to make sure if it gets through the door this is going to fit in the movie somehow and um and, you know, whether it did or not is up to other people's perspective. But that's that's a lot of what editing is. I, I mean, half of editing is, and I learned this from Richard, half the editing is running the room and, and being being the gatekeeper and being the, the politician and being the therapist and all is that. Is that stuff. the reading the room? Or is that like reading the director, what they really want or how would it? It's reading the director, but also reading like notes that come in from other people that are, you know, producers, writers, people that don't, that have their own vested interest and, or even preview audiences or whatever it might be, but understanding what maybe the note is behind the note, you know, that whole thing. The note behind the note. That was a big, like, there was also this vibe I got from you that like even the dumbest note you were getting, like, had a kernel of truth behind it. Like, mm. it just how someone describes their note is not the note, but the emotion behind the note. Mm -hmm. The note behind yeah. the note. Yeah, there's probably something, there's something that, something to it, um, as long as it's, if, unless they just 
didn't get it at all. <laughs> or, or, you know, it's not their type of film. It's just like on tree, you know, obviously a lot of people, it was very divisive. And so people just didn't like it and that's fine. It's <laughs> like, you know, it's like some people just didn't get it, but a lot of people obviously very much love it. And I'm one of those people. Yorker's a Curry does uh, Afterlife. When did you first see it? Um, I saw, it was really, you made me think about it now that I picked this movie because. What is your memory? When did you, what was the great memory when you (laughs) first saw it? My my favorite memory that I would live forever in eternity, um, though that's probably not far off, is um, in 1998, I guess when it came out, I was. Recently, in a, moved to LA. You know, I came down here in the mid '90s, and um, I was I went to a film at the um, the Los Angeles Asian American Film Festival. I guess it's called Asian Pacific Film Festival now. Um, in Little Tokyo, and I don't know what intrigued me about the premise of the movie. It was probably just the law. Well, it's an amazing movie. premise. It is such an amazing premise. It's just that got kind of high prompt high what do they call it? high concept kind of that one idea right. what would you if you could pick one memory to live the rest of your life and what would it be yeah so i went to uh the screening downtown and um was blown away i mean it was exactly the kind of mood for it you know i was kind of prepared for you know i didn't i knew it was going to be more of a thinker or more of a talker but but he it grabbed me obviously from those first 10 15 minutes when you're kind of the style of it and the um, the uh, um, the premise, and so were you lucky it, enough to have seen anything of his before this, or was this no? Your... I just kind of walked in fresh, and I think it was probably one of those things that was on a slate in a pro in a catalog. Well, it's his second movie too, so even you seen it at the at a what would have probably been an early festival screening in America, like that's yeah, LA. exactly. Yeah, and his first one, Maparossi, I'd never seen. I still haven't seen, actually. And I just realized it's it's on YouTube, so I can watch it. But um, so much stuff's on YouTube, and so is and so is Afterlife too. I had to kind of re. I don't have. I'm not. In is that where you watched it? So. Yeah. So it was. Well, I have the I have the Blu-ray now, but um, well, because the Blu-ray just came out. Like it's it, well, well, the Criterion just came out. I mean, I had the Blu-ray, um, a Japanese version of it that's subtitled. I don't really speak that much. I don't actually any Japanese. Um, I understand some, but I don't speak Japanese. So there was a subtitled version, fortunately, that was out that I had because I was one of my favorite movies. And to this day, it probably still when people ask my favorite movies, it's right there at the top, I would say, because, well, going back to that first experience. So I was sitting in that theater and um, yeah, it just sort of washed over me. And I um, <laughs> I remember one funny story from it is that did you, you just watched it recently? Rewatch yeah. it. I, I, I'll, go, I'll go into my first viewing too in a bit. But. Um, but but right around an hour, 40 minutes into the movie, there's this cut to black that happens. Yeah. Mm. And it, it, now that I'm thinking about it and I know the way films work, it was probably the end of Real 5 and because it was being projected on a film. And so it cut to black and then the lights went up and everybody was kind of sitting there. People were clapping. People didn't know the movie. And it was... 
it could have been an end of a yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. I, guess. I don't know and if you remember this. Like b- back when we were cutting together, I used to make a big deal about like if you feel we're near the ending of a movie, don't have black frames in like the last <laughs> twenty minutes of a movie. Right. Well, that's exactly what this was. Like twenty minutes before the end of the movie, there's a black, and it holds on it for a while. And I think it was the end of the reel. So the projectionist just assumed it was the end of the movie and brought the lights up, and then. Corieta comes out on stage and he because he'd been there to project to present it and he's had to tell the projectionist was he like waving his arms just like bring the lights down (laughs) yeah and he didn't really speak a lot of English so or any English maybe and he had to but he explained to somebody and then so everybody said oh I'm sorry sorry the movie is no there's still one more reel and I mean and thank God because the movie the last reel is great when they're putting together all their memories and filming them and everything but um or maybe it was, maybe I can't remember exactly what the last reel is, but um, anyway, so that was so he was there at the, that screening, and so I became a fan of his at that point, and then um, yeah, and then tried to try to catch as many of the movies as I could of his when they came out since. Have you seen any of his docs? No, I haven't. I haven't. I I feel like ostensibly you have, considering how <laughs> this hybrid style works, but uh-huh. you hadn't seen any of the pure ones. My first screening, do you remember we used to watch um, the period when I was like pure intern? Um, I would have everyone over super late when I was still working at the Galaxy Theater while also working on the movie. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I had, well, I also had a system set up to where we could play DVDs and Blu rays on the projector. I watched this at like one in the morning in the biggest theater. And because uh, one of the then local filmmakers, Kat Candler out of Austin, had written how much she loved this movie and oh. I rented it out of uh, probably Vulcan, I think, and watched it from there. Um, my first viewing wasn't, I was not prepped for it. I, I feel like I thought this was going to be a purely metaphysical movie and not something that was about half of it was about filmmaking itself. Mm. I was yeah, not prepped for I, the I, documentary aspect. And and I could also see watching it at one in the morning. It's not exactly, uh, um, a snappy paced movie, even though there's a lot going on, you know, but it, it, it might, I could see it being um, uh, maybe a little bit deliberately paced, but actually rewatching it, it's, it's not as slow as I thought it was. No, um, I mean, and, and, and pace is a big issue for me, but this was not that slow. It, I want to go into this later in a second, but yeah, but the documentary aspect of it was interesting because I did know, or maybe I found out after the fact, since I went into it totally fresh watching it, that he was a documentary filmmaker. And then it totally made sense in all of those interviews at the beginning. And it's unlike a lot of his other movies since, I mean, first of all, because it's, it, it is based in this, you know, magical realist world or kind of this in between, like right, kind of right, a right. parable kind of idea um, and not set in the real world. Is there um, any other talking head stuff in any of his other movies or this is it? Um, there's a little bit in the movie called I Wish, I remember, where the kids are talking about their wishes and what they would wish to happen if they could have any wish in the world. And so, and that had the same feeling as a lot of these interviews where they were uh, in the afterlife, where it just felt like they were sat down and it's almost like a casting call. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they did. If they had a casting call, they asked everybody that question, what me- what memory would you live the rest of your life? In? That's how the, and yeah. then... And then they kind of cast those people beyond there. Um, be, so that, did you see this movie this last year, this documentary called, it was about the, 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 about the old folks home where the, the mole agent, the, um, 
did you see this documentary called the, the mole agent you should check it out no it, it, it's 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 um it's about <laughs> there are these reporter abuses going on in this italian um, um old folks home and so they uh-huh. were, they needed they needed to get a um an elderly man or an elderly person to go pose as a as a um, uh you know somebody that was going to be living there and find out if if the staff was treating the people right and everything but it's it's really it's it's a really good movie you should check it out yeah it's called the mole agent but um but in that one same thing they interviewed a lot of people because they were trying to find the right agent to go into this home and everybody had their own stories and everybody was talking about their own past and that's what this one felt like to me is like they that they may have interviewed these people and they end up with like 21 22 subjects i think but it sounds like they interviewed more to go into the movie oh really Okay. Yeah. But then, did they craft their stories after that? Do you? You were saying that you read the or you were listening to the commentary. I mean, I, I, I looked up some stuff, but I mean, Criterion, you know, did their Criterion job. They they came out with a very a good edition with some good behind the scenes. And, um, well, the crazier thing is, uh, uh, Carnada had um TV background, and Mm. the original premise for this was supposed to be a TV show. Oh, interesting. Yeah, something that can go for, go, which makes sense. Like you know, especially during the episode of the week. But but then, like obviously, it has its finite story in a very touching twenty last twenty minutes. So mm-hmm. of, the, of in a feature, but yeah. I but the the documentary style, even right from the beginning, the first shots when it's kind of handheld, following the people up the stairs, and and it sets up this world where it's this in between world. I don't know if you explained to people what this movie is oh but. shit i guess i have to do the premise um so it's uh it's takes place in kind of a uh it's not exactly a purgatory but it's a kind of an in-between space where um 22 people have to figure out um they're being interviewed over the movie takes place over seven days but i guess they have they initially have three days to figure out their the, their most favorite memory and they're interviewed by souls themselves who have not figured out their own favorite memory and what happens is this kind of bureaucratic school like area will then after these souls have figured out their favorite memory will then refilm it and show them in a movie theater to these souls as they go off and into eternity and relive their favorite memory for eternity and there's also an in-between space where all these people who are working in it are people who haven't decided their favorite mo- their memory, favorite memory. And I, when I heard the premise, I was really expecting something very metaphysical, very magic realism. And I was not expecting something that was this much about documentary subjects. And Coronada, one of the cool things about him that credit where credit's due is that he's flat out said like, I'm not interested as a filmmaker in kind of purging my own inner life. I want to discover other people's inner lives, Hmm. which is a very great ethos to have as a filmmaker. Right. Yeah. I think he, and it is very different from a lot of his other films in that sense. I mean, it's very, it's very similar in the sense that it's very sincere and it's very honest. And it it is kind of like, um, and I guess that's from the, the filmmaker's, uh, I mean the documentary background, but like letting people talk and like have their own lived experiences kind of move forward. And it's not always 
talking about, you know, it's, there's some great scenes in the movie about, you know, people talking about their favorite. What, what makes me think about that it is, that it was shot documentary style was that a lot of them were talking about their experiences during the war or their first love right. or, you know, their favorite or their memory of their, their, their mother or father or dancing like a little, as a little girl. And, um, one of the crazier ones is the younger person, like in the commentary, they talk about this. The younger person was just like, I was on Splash Mountain. And the commentary is <laughs> like, that's a superficial memory. And in the in the movie, they were just like, look, 30 other girls picked this. And she has to repick her memory based on that. But a younger yeah. person doesn't know what the hell to pick. Right, right. And the, yeah, and so that kind of guide says, you know, yeah, I've been here one year and you're the 30th person who said Disneyland. As a, yeah. you're the 30th young girl. And, and, yeah. And, she ends up picking something much more special. Yeah, and so there's a, and there's a lot of humor in it too because I I remember like there's the older gentleman. Was there a lot of like, laughs at your first screening? I can't remember. I think so a little bit during the interview. I would process. imagine it have to be. Because there's like, you know, those guys are very natural because they're those guys, uh, I, haven't, I haven't even looked this up. You might even know how many of them were actors and how many were non-actors because that's one thing where like they're talking about, I mean, well, obviously I, this guy's probably an actor, but the main guy that, that ends up looking at all the VHS tapes of his life that he says, you know, they're saying he's like, I had a very boring life and, you know, I'm very plain. And, and the guy's like, do you have to don't you have a favorite what about your wife did you uh, go on any favorite trips with your wife and he's like do i have to pick something like that <laughs> that, that whole idea of like you know and then or like the guy talking thinking about all the sexual exploits and everything but then in the end the sexual like, you... exploits guy is going to come up multiple times i uh, hate yeah. uh, did you ever so you have have you seen the criterion or not no i have not no have you there was a um he made a um Coronada made a short film based on the deleted scenes Oh really? Oh, yeah. I see that. Well, for, suppose okay. When the crazier things I was reading the behind the scenes, like there's a five hour cut of this. What? Yeah, and oh. you know how one of the most interesting decisions is made is when they get to the end, and everyone's they show the filmmaking of everyone's favorite memory, mm-hmm. and then they get everyone in the theater to watch it, and as they watch it, they then move on to eternity, but right. they never show what they actually shot they never oh, show true. like that yes right in the behind the scenes they still are in this um extra stuff they still don't show it but they had this amazing sequence at the very end of the film of this short where um they sh- they, they they have a, a front of the auditorium shot where everyone sits down gets ready to watch their favorite memory and it's a full auditorium and it cuts to black very similar to that end of real five <laughs> right and then it cuts to a shot of snow, which was the, I think the Saturday or Sunday thing. And then it comes back and it comes up and the only person left is the, uh, the one guy who was the very promiscuous, the guy, the guy that had a bunch of sexual stories. He's sitting in the front row and he's the only person in the auditorium and he fell asleep <laughs> and they're just like, it's- Oh, you just they come up to him he's like you can't fall asleep I, I you can't just sleep through everyone else's story you just get to your and he's like i know i'm sorry but i just like stories with the climax and you know the hips moving and he starts telling these sexual stories <laughs> that's funny <laughs> it's a great cut because it's shot to shot like 
full auditorium, cut to the snow, and then cut back to the auditorium. He's the only person sleeping. He's just asleep, and he just slept through his... You know, it's so funny, them sitting in that auditorium. I think, you know, that was also a special affinity to me for the movie, because it felt... It was, it was reminiscent of sitting in film school and watching other people's short films or like, you know, you're always sitting there and you're watching all these other films and some of them are interesting. Some of them really aren't. And some of them, <laughs> some know, of them really you, aren't. <laughs> and you're kind of like just kind of watching, but you're being, you're being kind to everybody else because everybody else there is a filmmaker too. Right. And then mm-hmm. you're hoping that they don't have the same feeling toward your film as they do, you know, but in, in that, in that auditorium in afterlife, yeah, and all the instructors are sitting in the back row, just sort of like your professor. The back row, be. the, because yeah. the only other people there were the back row people who were just like used to the right. auditorium emptying out or the indifference. Yeah. But so but, you you, yeah. you had a really great first reaction to it. What was I mean? Going back to this idea that you were you were always one of those editors who's really attuned to behavior. Like, mm. how much of that was it? Because that seems to be. Cornada, like, like throughout his, like, so, so my watching of this was, I realized when we, you, we first started talking about doing this, I realized I'd seen this a long time ago, and then I saw Shoplifters, mm. and that was it. So mm-hmm. this weekend I watched, I rewatched those, uh, and I watched uh, Nobody Knows, and I watched his quasi English language, mostly French movie, his most recent feature, uh, The Truth. Mm-hmm. Those are the, those are to this day all I've seen of his. Yeah, I mean, I have, I, I've, I haven't seen the truth. I've been meaning to, but, um, but you've pretty much seen most everything else. Everything else is that's almost available. I I just realized there are a few that I haven't seen. There's a movie called Distance, and there's a movie called, uh, uh, well, his first. A ton of them are available on Hulu right now. Yeah, and so a lot of those. But I would highly recommend. There's a few. There's a couple of those movies. One is, um, like Father, like Son, and then that was on my list. I tried to get that, get that one in. And there's another one called Still Walking that's very much like Ozu. It's like Tokyo Story. It feels, it feels, um, but you know, all of them because I wish. And then um, I'm glad you mentioned Ozu too, just because like supposedly he's defensive against uh, Ozu comparisons, but Ozu is the most obvious one. Like it's yeah. a lot of still frames, a lot of, it was Ozu the one that had the pillow shots. Like, yes. uh, like there's a lot of those in there. Um, uh, I mean, Ozu just seems the one I would go to. Yeah, I know it's it's hard not to compare, but there's you know there's also yeah other I'm sure several other influences uh, that are more drawing on real life, you know, um, acting or act experiences because like nobody knows or you know I'm sure there's a lot of like that I don't know what it is like that Cassavetes or kind of that kind of that feel. Well, one of the crazy things about. Mm-hmm. watching the truth and nobody knows right next to each other is the truth was like him doing a lot of um, mm. big actors and he would shoot a lot of close-ups and it seemed like a very TV-ish style where he was just going dialogue faces, but you do nobody knows. And like nobody knows what this guy did. Like they shot for over a year in the same mm. apartment. And so many of those shots, like, besides the fact that you can see the, like it's boyhood esque where you could see the like progression of time, but also there's a lot of oblique angles where you're just like, he really feeds into this behavioral thing where he's like, he's not shooting faces. He's shooting feet. He's shooting these mm-hmm. odd angles of hands or like angles where you're like, I'm not sure what I'm watching. And then some figure comes into the frame. That's not a face. Right. 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 And a lot of that 
is behavior too. And going back to your original question about behavior, I, I think that is one thing that I did latch onto and being probably from his documentary background, but even, even in those, those talking head interview parts of afterlife where they're kind of explaining their story and their favorite memory, or they're trying to work through their memories. Mm -hmm. It's all behavior, even though they're talking, their, their, their facial expressions, their hand gestures, even their body language. Well, even their storytelling in that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so I was keyed into that. And then also his, in this particular movie, at least parts documentary style, following the the the, the guides around the the um, you know their campus or whatever it is, um, but then it's also mixed with very clear like kind of classically composed and classically uh, uh, covered scenes when the narrative needs to kind of move forward and you know the people talking. So I love that mix. And then at the end, then it was this extra bonus where all of a sudden it was about filmmaking. I had no idea, you know, two two thirds the way through the movie, and all of a sudden they start shooting their. They shoot dreams. so analog. There's show going back to what you were talking about how the physicality of shooting on thirty five, even though this movie was shot on sixteen, mm. like just how physical they are on the shooting. Mm. They're just oh, yeah. like, oh, we can't. We're in this metaphysical space, but by the way, we have to use co- like cotton, cotton to like clouds. show yeah. how a pilot would fly through clouds. Right, right. It felt very film schooly too, which I was, <laughs> you know, not far that far removed from too. So yeah. it, it, it was very nostalgic in that sense. But I think what I didn't realize, and now looking back on it, and that why I still count it as probably my favorite film is it has that. Um, movies as memory theme to it and it's hard to really pin down exactly because it's on works on so many levels but when we first started talking about this you mentioned we were trying to compare reminiscence to this and you were just saying like you were showing you were talking about this during while you're editing that just because memories were a big part yeah i mean it's the 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 way that lisa had set up the machine in reminiscence was a little bit different in the sense that it was a exact replica of what your memory it was like scientifically based where the, when you go in the machine, you would be able to recreate, you know, even if things in your peripheral were half aware to you, then they would be a little fuzzier, but the things, the, the object of your attention would be the most clearly in focus. Mm-hmm. But the observer, like somebody like Hugh Jackman's character could look into the person's dream and see things that they weren't even aware of just because they were aware of it in some sense, because of, you know, when they walk into a room, like right now, I know to my right is my kitchen, to my left is my backyard, but I don't know exactly what's happening there. And if somebody was there, I how much of them isn't my memory, you know, how much I could access just from re- remembering would be different than what scientifically I would be able to recall. The one specific thing I was remembering was the 21-year-old in, uh, in Afterlife who was making the point that, like, he was spoiler alert he was the one who was like i have to stick around because he couldn't decide but he was also the one that was arguing about the uh impermanence of memory Mm, right right yeah and how it's all and again this goes back to the movies or cinema as memory thing it's like everything looking back on you know your memory is essentially a story that you tell yourself right because you can't really exactly remember what it is i'm glad you brought this up this is going to come up in a second oh really and so the idea that you're and it's all it's all twisted and, and uh 
depending on how long ago it was, obviously, you've made your own stories up about what a memory was, just like us talking about our day's entry of life. You know, it's all different. But, um, but yeah, so that's where reminiscence differs from afterlife. But in afterlife, what intrigued me was the idea that if you were only allowed to choose one specific memory, then how do you choose that? And what well i was telling you about that new movie uh nine lives that just came out that Mm. seems like a like so influenced by this like Mm. at least in the premise even though it's the inverse whereas this is about what movie you take to the afterlife that movie's about souls that have not gotten into life yet trying to pit like justify what they would do to go into life themselves but Mm -hmm. it even like overlaps to where the level of like once you go into life, everyone watches the, like the these soul these uh, ethereal like purgatory watches human souls through videotape. Yeah, wait in nine lives or in afterlife? In not both in both. Uh, no way, really. But in nine lives, the whole yeah. thing is like they choose a soul to go through, and they watch their first person point of view through a videotape, or they watch it through video, and they have to ch- periodically tape it. Just and then they tape it just to learn what it is that makes a soul succeed and what is the metric which choose who, which pre-soul is going to then get into a human life at that point and live a life. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and in afterlife, it's, it's that character that, 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 that older gentleman that says he has such a boring life. He'd have to jog his memory. And then they play those old VHS tapes and they got all those VHS tapes piled up and it's, it's funny too because this is shot in 1998 so it was still you know it was very video society yeah it was video but it was on the cusp of dvd but it's like i'm so glad it was still vhs because there's something very tactile and very like like nostalgic about seeing those tapes piled up like that but then he's watching through his years and it does turn into a plot device too when they realize when when the the main guys the young 21 year old says i end uh, up in, in uh, nine lives end up being this weird medium um, I don't know. It ha- it had a metaphysical vibe of going back and forth between this. The storytelling aspect, not to get into broader philosophical ideas, but uh, one of our old mutual friends from Tree of Life, Julio Quintana, was recently on an episode. Mm. And we were talking about philosophies on storytelling. And I brought up um, Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman, who, again, I'm going to bring up shit that I'm going to describe that I don't entirely understand. <laughs> sure. But he has this concept uh, to, he has this, the idea is like you're uh, experiencing self versus you're remembering self. And your remembering self is the thing that ends up helping you define who you, your personality or how you self-define personality, but your experiencing self, we dismiss very casually. And he has these examples in his book, uh, thinking fast and slow, where he talks about the, the first way he describes it is like, if you listen to an opera, say like an eight hour opera and you listen to seven hours of it and it's masterful and emotional. And then in that last hour, they fuck it up and they started screwing it up you start saying that was a bad opera just because it had a bad ending and it ruined everything. But that goes against your experience in self where seven out of eight hours of that was masterful and beautiful to you. Mm. But your remembering self, your remembering self tends to apply from what I'm understanding, what Kahneman was talking about 
how storytelling works on us because it's also applies to like as film people we constantly talk about endings we mm. talk about like great endings going out on a high note a movie really seeming like it notes what it's doing and the remembering self basically just correlates to memory to me like and like the story the the very basis of like why storytelling is a basis of all of human organization comes from memory and memory is like the first story we tell ourselves of who we are why we're here what we're doing and this movie then goes into the central idea of like why don't you pick a favorite memory of that Mm -hmm. pick a favorite story of what your life the point of your life was yeah, and you know what's interesting about that too, because the, uh, this device of watching the videotapes, which ostensibly within the framework of the film is the real life, and the same thing with reminiscence, right, is what really happened versus what your memory and the story you tell yourself is. The imperfect and plastic memory of it was. Yeah, and I'm sure you make yourself more of a hero, right, in, in your memories, and, and, and you're not the villain or you're not the, you know, the um, the dupe or whatever it is. Um but if you uh, in this in in the memories on the tape, um, and I'll have to watch Nine Lives, but the idea that you can see yourself for who you really are, and then I mean, it it doesn't really they don't really dive into that so much on an afterlife, but that is an interesting idea that I think in the film making analog to it, it's like people, you know, writers, directors wanting to go back and make tell their story life stories or whatever, you know, or even biopics if you're telling a story about somebody else, you know. Well, I think you're, you're pointing out something interesting about the level of autobiography in every storyteller, much less someone who has the ability to um, convince someone to pay for a giant multimillion dollar project to make their own elements of their own autobiography onto film. Right, right. Right. But but I do think that, um, but the idea of a memory, of movies as a memory is an interesting idea, even as us, looking back on old movies that we liked, right? And is how it shaped our, like the first part of this talk about what shaped me and my favorite movies were, you know, I, Uh it's only in retrospect, like at the time, would I have said that, you know, the graduate or something is a favorite movie? No, I I mean, I probably was just watching it and like was, uh, uh, it's only like later in life when you realize or, or you put your you put yourself in this framework of like oh what 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 shaped me or what whereas I probably would have been the little girl that liked Splash Mountain right I would have said <laughs> and it's still and what, you know, what's wrong Star with Wars. the girl that likes Splash Mountain exactly I was like I like Star Wars so what you know that's, exactly that's, that's, exactly that's what uh it let me choose that um but as far as movies representing memory that's a whole different yeah I've always been fascinated with that we certainly did said a lot of that on, on tree of life and, and other movies I've worked on. I mean, it's a key part of tree, but I mean, really I'm, I'm not talking specifically about that. I'm talking about how this affects like everybody's like, even like giant world building genre stories. Like we have to have like a grounded reference for that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the Japanese title for this is Wonderful Life, not Afterlife, which I think I haven't even gotten into the whole, like uh, th- this is one of your favorite movies, Mark. I didn't well, realize. Yeah, it is only it again, framing it in that world of memory versus like actual quality movie. 
it has it has a special place in nostalgia for me because I found it at a time when my career was just started was just getting going, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I you know and like one of the last memories one of the last images on the film you know when the when the one guy realizes his memory his this is very meta but like the idea that his memory that he wants to hold on to is that memory of being with those people that were making the film, you know, and he looks up into the camera and then he sees the crew looking back at him and then he disappears because his memory. I think it's going to be a key image for my Instagram on this episode too. <laughs> oh, nice. But there's a lot of that, 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 that I imbue into this movie in particular, because I think some of his later movies are definitely better for sure. But like that idea of this, where this at movie, least more masterful and more yeah, kind of the, and more skilled and, and more and more emotional and more. This is kind of working at this one like kind of like I said high concept level, and you're kind of like going with it, and it's kind of fun to watch. And I like the I like the um, the artistry of what he did with the movie. But then there's other movies like his later movies are much more grounded in obviously reality and much more real and and human dynamics and and uh, and but still has all the behavior still has all the great acting still has the great story and the, 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 um, you know, are just better movies altogether. But this one I can always rewatch because it brings me back to that time of watching it the first time, which in itself folds back upon memory of, you know, it's, it's my, my imagination of what it was. This is going back to what you were saying. It's like of what it was to watch the movie the first time. Yeah. Um, And it just, um, and then, you know, having all the, the filmmaking aspect of it, too. I've always been fascinated with uh, Peter Jackson's remake of King Kong just because he was wanting to remake how he felt when he was like five year old, five years old and watching it for the first time. And he wanted to remake that, how the movie he saw in his head yeah. for that. I, I'm, I, I think this is amazing. It's your favorite movie. I... Even the second time around, I didn't. I got to be honest. I didn't entirely engage with the movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fair. Well, no, no. I want to. As an editor, uh, I I have a bigger philosophical question to ask you. What is your concept of pace when you're in editing? Because for me, it's always about. Sometimes you get these very insecure, um, justifiably so, in early stages when you're putting a movie together and trying to figure out what the hell it is. Do we go faster? Do we go slower? That's always a big mm-hmm. question. Go that, that. And it goes back to basics you taught me, where it was just like you have to follow what the audience is telling you they like, which so means basically in its in utero state, you have to show the movie to people and then get a very organic reaction from them, engage that reaction, and then develop the movie from there. And one of the basics I ha- found for Pace at that point is how much people are engaged with the elements of what the movie is presenting. Like I'm, I'm trying to figure out like kind of basically an Eastern Western pace mentality where like, um, like some movies just feel slow and some movies feel too fast or, but at the same time, like a slow movie that is engaged with an audience member perfectly. Like there's a great quote whenever, uh, Corrada was like first um, figuring out what he wanted to do when he switched from TV to features. Um, he thought he was going to try to have to swing for the, the fences and try to get a big audience. And, and this producer who was coming down on him, he tells us uh, interview at the, in the, in the criterion version 
this producer said like, you need to find the specific audience member, the one audience member that you're making this movie for and make that for them and then grow it out from there. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I, you know, what is pace for you is I guess the basic question. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, in this, I think this goes to the core of how I always view editing in general is editing for me is just very instinctual, right? So you just, to me, you always just cut, you stay on a shot for as long as you're interested and then you cut to the next thing you want to watch, you, you would want, you yourself would want to see. That's all editing is, right? And you have to, I mean, you can but get But then into, you do it again and again and again for 16 months and then you're just yeah. like, did I have the same reaction every time I watched it? Well, yeah, no, it's true. It's true. But then, but as far as the core of editing, you kind of, you're on this shot and then either you want to see something else or you don't, or you want to stay on that shot and then you make the cut. And you just have to hope that your your instincts line up with at least some people. Ideally, it lines up with the director because that's the person as an editor you're usually needing to be on the same page wavelength with. Because if you're not on the same wavelength, then it's going to be a rough road ahead. <laughs> you know, if you're always picking take three and they're always picking take four, or you're always wanting to hold on a shot and they're always wanting to cut, then it's it's going to be a fun, fun journey. Yeah. And so like with all the directors I've worked with, it's always, you never know too, cause you're in the interview process, but it, when you're, when you're in like, uh, um, like I, for example, when I was doing uh succession, right. When I was doing the pilot on succession, we didn't even bring up it, succession, yet. It, but it was so different. But Adam McKay is somebody I've always wanted to work with. Right. But I did no idea what his tastes were. I mean, I, just, I love his movies and I love, you know, his, his work, but then sensibilities. Yeah. Guy. Sensibilities. But then how do you, I, and, but very early on he was saying, Oh, you're making all the choices I would have made. And it just gives you more confidence to keep going on with that. You know, whereas if you're working with a director, wait, you're saying he, he, you and him were compar- completely in sync whenever you were working. It, it seemed like it. Yeah. I mean, it seemed like, and, and pilots are different because it's so fast and you're doing such a quick cut and he was like, right, busy. Right, right. he was kind of busy writing, vice or something during that time but he but it was like he was there's a certain trust there right and so you have um you have to know that your your instincts are going to be sort of what they you know it's not like like a few times like he would say oh good that's exactly where i would have cut or that's exactly the take or that's the person i wanted to see at that point or i'm glad you caught that moment or whatever it is you know and that you kind of have to jive with the same thing, you know, working with Lisa Joy or Terrence Malick or Francis Lawrence, all these people have their own rhythms, right? And their own, oh. and you have to hope that yours is sort of in the same, you know, taste zone as, as theirs. And then, so that's the first job as an editor, I think. And then the second job is what you're saying in the audience and, and seeing and hoping that there's more than one person out there that that does have that same vibe and is, is, is appreciating that same. Do you think the job, like the job of figuring out the audience stuff is the director's job and not your job? Or no, no, it's definitely between? part of the editor's job. It's, it's, I mean, it's also the director's job, everything. The, the, the editor's job is to serve the director, in my opinion, you know, to, that vision, you know, that they're trying to get across. But, you know, at a certain point, that you're in sense. the trenches and, and it's both of your visions and you're trying to please the audience the same way, you know, Ideally, you're on the same page with the editor, with the director, um, as far as what the understanding with the audience, what you think the audience wants or doesn't want.
as far as pace goes, sometimes I'm guilty of pacing things, of knowing my instinct initially and then just mm. pacing things up like crazy because I, I do get tired of watching it over and over again sometimes. Um, on the other hand, letting things go long just because I know the director would probably want. Well, I, I see this is again one of those things I think you and I instinctively always had in common where it was again the high low, the whole um, um, even as arty as things need to be, we still wanted to pace them out. But the one I, I guess we can wind this down. One of the last things I want to ask you about was our old boss's philosophy that occasionally came up that really uh, it came up when I was watching this movie a lot. Um, I still have the framed uh, uh, photo that was given to us the Wu Wei philosophy well he gave okay explain to me again what that one is because there were so many of them that he was... defined he defined it to us as to walk without walk I want to say it was almost walking a creek without leaving a footprint but it was a walk without leaving a footprint yeah this idea of like one of the things that I do find in Kanata's um general stuff is just this idea of like i mean his music philosophy like the amount of music he would put into stuff just like the ornaments the like the stain on a shot the unadorned shot that would linger forever it was just like in the documentary background that he was really trying not to like sprinkle anything up and uh, the Wu Wei philosophy, from what I remember, was generally just tr not to try to to fancy anything up, and just to let everything represent what it was supposed to represent, and let the audience meet you more than halfway. Yeah, no, I think that's the whole avoiding. Yeah, the filmmaker's hand not being pre presenting things. Avoiding the filmmaker's hand was the other th the philosophy. I don't know if that was your yeah. phrase or that came no. up, but I remember that was the one I remember more than anything else. Yeah, no, that definitely was not mine. But that was something I tried to follow when he when he wanted to do that. It's like the re the reason I said explain that one is just because there was the whole intention, which is the wordless communication, and then there was the there there were all these. I used to get Wu Wei and intention confused. In fact, when I was looking this up, I mentally went with intention and was like, "That's not what I'm thinking of at all." <laughs> um, but as far as um, as far as an editing philosophy it's like something I, I mean i do still apply a lot of that that feeling of of not making things like not leaving a footprint meaning the invisible cut right it's like the, the invisible, invisible cut yeah 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 it's like the because like i was saying if you're cutting to the things that that instinctively you would want to see next then the audience doesn't even know there was a cut there right because they wanted to see it next and so that's the magic of the invisible cut in a way now there's bold things where you put in and you know we did that a lot in what we worked on where you would just cut to something that would be complete that's a stream of consciousness cutting that's coming that's emanating from the film when you're cutting to something that you never would have thought you would have cut to Right. I that's, would argue that's, that's a pace thing. That was a pace between the invisible versus the bold in that regard, or how you're defining it. The the oh the pace because those bold cuts would would pace is pace is not just speed. Pace is like information versus like um um ebb and flow too. Oh right. It's just right. yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, the natural versus the force, or like the, not necessarily force in a bad way, but something that was, that's a bold. The flow versus the authorial voice, too, even. Right. But if you, the authorial voice is the filmmaker's hand, then that would be something that would be looked upon, down upon in that, in that, in that. I just always argue that you have to have that occasionally. Like, just yeah. you have to have one little glimpse of it. You have to have the cut from the bone to the the nuclear satellite. Yeah. Yeah. If <laughs> nuclear satellite. Um, yeah. I mean, it is. It's different. You know, it's different strokes for different directors. <laughs> this is the this is a microcosm of two years in an editing room. <laughs> But it is also the editor's job to shape yourselves to the to those. I mean, because it's like the the filmmaker's hand and and not showing intention. That's you know obviously that's the exact opposite of what I'm doing with Francis Lawrence. He everything he does is intentional and everything is pre planned and it's beautifully done and so it's done very well you know and very well composed and and uh, it's everything the music is put exactly where it should be and the, the angles are exactly what they should be. Not leaving not not as much to chance, you know. So that's more of a t- technical feat. Same thing with reminiscence. You know, I thought I thought Lisa constructed a world and and built a team around that had, uh, uh you know, it was very technically well laid out. You know, and, and uh, something completely different than what Terry would have done. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, the thing with the movie for me was that, like, I was not prepared. I was expecting some kind of, like, vaguely way more metaphysical thing and not just, like, treaties on filmmaking. So I guess that was why it took me a second to really get into it. Right. But I think to me, I mean, to me, it's not so much a treaties on filmmaking. It is, it all stems from that first idea of what would you, what, what, what is memory and what is your favorite memory? To me, the, the stronger part isn't the last third, isn't them making their memories or even the plot device of the guy realizing he was part of somebody else's memory, you know, all of those things. Which, that, by the way, I should mention that that thing has eluded me on two viewings. It took me forever to realize, like I had to read plot synopses to realize that. Oh, that the guy, because yeah, yeah he died in the war and then. Which, to be his... fair, I am kind of a fucking dunce and sometimes <laughs> on a movie, so let's not, let's not hold it against the movie. <laughs> because that, I mean, that actually is sort of an emotional moment when he, to me, not for somebody that didn't get it, obviously, but like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the idea that he, he always wanted his purpose and like, he didn't have a memory that he could move on for forever because he felt like he didn't have a purpose on life. Actually, you know what? I do have a weird interpretation I want to ask you about really mm-hmm. quick. Um, this is on my second viewing tonight, right before we start recording. So there's the two main... Uh, Takashi is the main one that has the realization that like um, he was the love of his subject's life. Uh, his his subject's wife's life. And then like his subject, when he gets a memory, he gets a letter. He's like, thank you for not bringing that up, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But there was the, the relationship between the two younger counselors is uh, between Takashi and Shiori. Shiori is um, kind of always shot in this way, like she has a crush on mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I've heard some some interpretations where they're just annoyed that it's it's characterized as a crush, which I get that. I totally get that. But first off, on um, Shiori, do do you remember her ever talking about any of her memories? Um, 
No, I she, don't she has that. a big sequence where they talk about they they try to go. What's they ask everyone? What's your first memory? And then uh, someone, the boss, brings up this idea that like, oh, you you could remember when you were in the womb and you were underwater, and then it cuts to a scene of her going in this bathtub where there's all these bathtubs where the water's up to the edge, and <laughs> right. she puts her head underneath there and pours water underneath that, and she holds her nose to try to get a memory and got it gets nothing. That's the only one I remember. I don't remember anything of her tr- actually remembering anything in the movie. Am I? No, uh, it's been a while since I remember specifics, but I think that she did not. I mean, she obviously hadn't picked one and she makes a reference to people leaving her and she, something about, because when the guy decides he has found his memory, mm-hmm. she's upset that she's going to, she's going to, and oh, she, she stays. Yeah, she stays, and she wants. She's the she, last shot in the movie, right? Because she doesn't want to forget. No, well, not. I don't know if she's the last shot, but she. She's like the last. That other young like punk second kid, penultimate they, shot, and the last shot is about. So. Uh, maybe. Well, I, I remember because the next week starts right, and they get in a whole new crowd right, of right, people right. coming in, and then that young kid, the punk kid that didn't want to choose anything, he ends up coming on as a new counselor. At the very end. But he's an assistant. He's like an assistant. Yeah. I mean, he's like kind of a newbie, so I'm sure they're just showing him the ropes. But he kind of is going to be a new counselor, I guess. But as far as hers, I don't know. Yeah. My weird-ass theory, do you think it's possible she is the um, uh, the wife? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. No, no, no. No, she's not. You know why she's not? Because that why? wife moved on. That wife... They, they went back and looked at her memory. But the whole thing chose... about the movie, when you watch it multiple times, you start to realize the rules are very flimsy. <laughs> okay. Maybe. I mean... I guess all filmic rules are flimsy if you yeah. want to pretend they're flimsy. Yeah. Well, the, the, the big part, the big opening I think to me was they made a big... Like, uh, it was in the commentary they started talking about um, the rules being flimsy. And one of my first notes was on... Um, they had to figure out their first their their memory by sundown on Wednesday and there's key shots in that sequence that are clearly after sundown. (laughs) And so you you make a point. It's just like this is, there's no rigor rigor to these rules. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't notice that, but you know, it's so funny too. I just want the internet to do something from this. I don't know. There is something about how rough, and that doesn't surprise me that there's those little holes, but there is something about the movie that is, and knowing it was early in his career too, that has a sort of film school quality to it as well. Not Mm -hmm. just the way that they're making the films at the end, that I think holds that special place in my heart because it does feel a little bit like that. Like it's this idea that that people had made you think, and it kind of was like, it was realized in, a kind of haphazard way it still comes together but it still is not you know it's his 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 later films are much more auteurish yeah, yeah yeah but um but i think that's also what what but again you know bring it all full circle i think that it's part of the why i liked it is because of the meta aspect of it not the filmmaking aspect but me actually finding it at a point in my life when i was you know that could be one of my favorite memories of sitting in that room watching that movie for the first time like the feeling of watching you know movie. one of the things i was i forget i think it was in the essay um um there the criterion had this really cool essay in there from uh Vietan win from the 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 author of the sympathizer 
Oh, yeah. And there was, a, there was a lot of good information in there about it. But towards the end of that essay in the Criterion Edition, he talks about, like, the main memory that Corneta has, if he had to pick a movie or a memory, it was him watching Kurosawa's Ikaru in college. Mm. And he and he he tells a story about like at the end of the movie everyone clapped and it was one of the first times he'd been in a movie theater where everyone clapped and he's just like who are we clapping to? There's no one. The filmmakers aren't here. They're not going to hear clapping. So that's interesting. Wait, that was one of Viet's. That was his that was, No, no. He 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 in in the essay he he found that Corrida had said that that the Corrida oh, that, that was his favorite movie. I see. What, favorite memory. Favorite memory. Well, it's what's interesting about that is that. Ikuru, that character was also named Watanabe. That is probably who that guy was based on. Like the old, you know, the the, the old bureaucrat that has cancer and is looking for his favorite memory. You know, is looking it, back on his life. Ikuru is still my favorite Kurosawa movie too. So, yeah. It was funny um, too. Is that I, to, my sister in law is friends with Viet. It happens that I happen to know him just socially. So I'll, I'll have to ask him about that. That's funny. I, yeah, I, I've been wanting to read the sequel, too. So, um, Mark Ishikawa, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, please come back. Thank you, Shane. Anytime. Do it. Yeah, man. Do it again. All right.